Daniel is definitely a book of hope. I've shifted that a little bit, but we're going to keep that theme of hope that is in this book. And I wanted to start just posing a question. We, we are, I think, a people hungry for hope. We are people hungry for hope. Would you agree with that? We want hope. We long for hope. And hope in the sense of not just, I hope so this will happen, but a, a, a confident expectation expectation of something coming but we haven't yet received, haven't yet experienced or at least fully experienced it. I wanted to just start with, well, what do you hope for? There are many things that we hope for. In the midst of the stuff of life, what do you hope for? Maybe it has to do with finances. Maybe it has to do with um, money, employment, a job. Maybe it's, I hope I win the lottery. That's more of a hope so than a a confident expectation, isn't it? At least if you're in tune with reality, that's definitely a hope so. Maybe it's more in terms of like, um, well, like the Pusselar's recent experience and like uh, Ryan and Jill this very moment hoping for a baby. Maybe it's um, hoping that a relationship could be different, could be healed. We've just had... Thanksgiving, and oftentimes when the family's together, either some of the relationships within that together, or maybe some of the some of the people that are missing from that gathering, or because of relationships that aren't what they should be in family or friends, and and maybe there's there's hope concerning your own marriage, or a marriage that's very dear to you and close to you. What do we hope for? Maybe we hope to be someone. We hope to be successful. We, we hope to be famous. There's a, there's a hunger in our society today. There's a hunger. It's fueled by stuff we see on TV, certainly, and, and uh, online. There's a hunger to be known. There's a hunger to be somewhat famous, to be a celebrity to others, to be recognized. It goes back to, really, my identity. Who am I? I hope I'm somebody. I hope I matter. I hope others care. What do you hope for? Well, there's a, there's a hope that's presented to us in the book of Daniel. Daniel's an interesting book. We're, we're there again this Sunday because this is a prophetic season. Advent is a, is a season of anticipation of Christ's coming. Celebrating what was told to the prophets and occurred and what we still wait for. His return, just as assured, just as confident, not a hope so hope, but a confident expectation of that which we have not yet received. And yet Daniel's unique in that it divides nicely. Last week we had a demonstration of what it is to live in hope, to live out a humility of hope, to to be able to bear a true testimony in troubled times because that testimony is founded upon not a hope so but a confident, assured expectation that what God has said, that he will do. So that song that you sang, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, who mourns in lonely exile here. Oh, that's Daniel's song, isn't it? That's Daniel's song in the midst of exile until the Son of God appear. You see, that last line, that's the rest of Daniel. That's chapters 7 through 12. Let me review Daniel's 1 to 6. I'm going to do this in in about one minute. 
Daniel 1 to 6, Daniel's life among the exiles is a demonstration of how to live in light of Christ's coming. Through 70 years of exile in a godless nation, Daniel and others who believe in the true God, their Savior, they resolve to follow God, chapter 1, who is sovereign over all the world's rulers, chapter 2, even though they are intimidated and pressured to cave in, and abandon their faith, chapter 3, still they seek God's mercy for the good and well-being of others, chapter 4, boldly telling God's truth, chapter 5, and trusting themselves to God's faithfulness, chapter 6. Now you're wondering, why couldn't he do that last week? (laughs) Well, let's take a crack at chapters 7 through 12. It probably won't be quite so brief. But it's good. One of the reasons we're going through this series through the Bible is so we get a handle on the book as a whole. So we get a handle on how God has revealed himself in this Bible. The Bible is well, it's, it's a difficult book. It's from our creator who is showing himself to us. It's a full book. There's a lot of pages. But there's one big story that God, God is showing himself to us showing his love for humanity which he made through a savior which he promised and whom he sent and who shows us in person God himself and who is coming again. And we already live for him in the midst of this world while we wait his return. That overall story, the book of Daniel is a good book for us. You know, Daniel was to the Old Testament what the book of Revelation is to the church today. It, it tells the rest of the story. It tells the end of the story. It tells how things are going to wrap up and what's going to happen. It fills us in and fills our faith. It founds our faith. It gives us something to stand on. Daniel, these chapters we're going to look at this morning are actually called the backbone of prophecy. This is where, we, where we, we have a skeleton by which other details are added in other places. But for instance, you don't understand the prophetic fulfillment that is described in the book of Revelation if you don't first understand the book of Daniel, where those things were first laid out and set forth. So Daniel chapter 7 through 12 are Daniel's prophetic visions of the coming of God's everlasting kingdom. Daniel is in the midst of these earthly kingdoms anticipating God's coming everlasting kingdom. First hinted at in Daniel chapter 2, but now there will be some prophecies that line up with Daniel chapter 2 and flesh that out all the more. Let's jump in. I want to give a, give a survey through the book and then make some points from chapter 12, which chapter 12 is the end of the book. It's the goal of the book. Think of end in terms of not just the conclusion, but think of end in terms of the goal of the book. Why was this book written to people returning out of Babylonian exile to again testify of God as a people before the nations? Why was this book given to them? How does it strengthen them? How does it strengthen us to do the same thing today in this nation, in this community, and around the world? Daniel Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, I titled, The Kingdoms of This World Will Become the Kingdoms of Our God and of, and of His Christ. There is an extended vision in Daniel chapter 7. And here you have, it parallels very nicely with Daniel chapter 2. Different imagery, but the same sequence of kingdoms. There's the... There's a lion with wings. And interesting, this lion with wings, actually the, lings, the wings are plucked off the lion. And, well, that reminds us of, of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon's humbling. 
the lion's wings are plucked off, but then the lion is actually stood up more like a man. God created humanity in his image. Part of that image is upright. God created humanity to rule over the rest of his creation, to represent God to the rest of his creation, and yet these kingdoms, broken and fallen, are pictured like beasts. But perhaps Nebuchadnezzar restored is brought a little more upright, a little more back to what God had created humanity and even human government to represent him to be. So there's a lion in chapter 7, and that lion equates to the Babylonian Empire. There's a bear that equates to the Medo-Persian Empire. There's a leopard that represents Greece. The leopard has four heads because Alexander the Great is going to rush through and conquer. He's going to die very young. He's not going to leave any heirs, and so his kingdom is going to be, be divided among four generals. And that, that is filled out later. You see that ex- that's said explicitly in some of the later prophecies. And then there's a fourth beast, a great and terrible beast. It seems to be a combination of the three and even worse. It's different than the other three. There's some intrinsic differences about it. Historically, people have, 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 have equated the fourth beast often with the Roman Empire. Really, that came out of Martin Luther. Martin Luther, we have to thank for that equation initially, and then Hal Lindsey just took it and ran with it. But, but Martin Luther and the Reformation period believed that the Pope, the head of the Catholic Church, which he was, he was um, in conflict with because of the truth of the gospel, identified the Pope as the Antichrist. If the Pope was the Antichrist, the Roman Catholic Church and the Roman Empire, well, the Roman Empire was then the beast out of which the Antichrist would arise. And so since then, we've kind of lived in that heritage. I, I'm actually not convinced that, that that fourth beast is actually Rome. This is just my prophetic heresy, okay? You get this at no extra charge. Don't walk out and leave, though. It's not, it's not that serious. There's one verse in Daniel that seems to suggest Rome that I think actually suggests something else. Let me cut to the chase. There's, there's some notes on the back of your insert where I gave you this. Don't spend a lot of time reading it now. You can reflect on it later. But I wanted to give just an overview of that prophetic because that prophetic overview was not my biggest purpose this morning. But if I could cut to the chase, I think it fits much better from a Jerusalem-centered understanding of Daniel's prophecies. And understand, Daniel is written for Israel. And, and a Jewish center of these, all these other empires, Babylon, it's, it ends up, Jerusalem's right in the center, and Babylon includes all of these surrounding nations. And then the Medo-Persian Empire includes all of these surrounding nations, and Jerusalem, again, is almost center They're surrounded on every side by this empire. Greece comes along and it begins to the west, but it spreads all the way further to the east and takes over the Medo-Persian Empire. And again, Jerusalem there at the center and all of these nations. Rome never went east to encompass much of Babylon and Medo-Persia and even what Greece also had conquered. Rome never went that far east. There's another empire that arose that did. Think of the Ottoman Empire. Think of an Islamic caliphate, it's called. It's different than these others in that all of those others were polytheistic political empires. The kings of those empires ruled, but they allowed a diversity of gods. Often they would insist, well, worship my god as the chief, like Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 3. 
Or like the Romans did later on where with emperor worship. You could worship other gods, but you needed to include emperor worship in there somewhere because that was faithfulness to the emperor. But all of those empires were polytheistic, but the Ottoman Empire was different. The Ottoman Empire destroyed all of those others. It left no room for any other gods except one god, Allah, and his prophet, Muhammad. In, and it, and it, it didn't tolerate the cultures of the other empires. It actually, it actually stamped them out in the, in, the, in the language used by Daniel so that only an Arabic Islamic culture was left anywhere that that empire conquered. And if you look at that old Ottoman Empire, you will find it, it encompasses that same area on the map surrounding Jerusalem and spreading out from there, including all of those Arabic and now Islamic countries still that surround Israel, like Edom and Moab, which are Jordan, like Syria, like Egypt, and the Saudi Arabian Peninsula, and what is now, ba- what was now Iraq and Iran, all of those nations that are featured in end times prophecies, all of those are part of that Islamic caliphate, that Ottoman Empire, which ended in the, in the early 20th century, but there's a huge push in the Middle East today. So much of the conflict that you read about in the news is aimed at a restoration of a united, again, a united Islamic empire, a restored caliphate, which many believe would be headed by an Islamic messianic figure called the, called the Mahdi. If you've heard of some of those terms round about in the news here and there, I just throw that out to, to say that things could be lining up prophetically a whole lot closer. Now, people have, have gone decade after decade after decade saying, look, this is it. Look how the pieces are lining up. This is what the prophet said. This is it. And the situation changes a little. And all of a sudden, it doesn't quite line up so well. I say all of that just to say, don't get too trapped into a, especially an American-centered view of prophecy. The book is most about Jerusalem. The prophecy concerning the king and the city he will reign in Jerusalem has got to be Jerusalem-centered. Definitely it was for Daniel. But Daniel chapter 7 gives an overview of those kingdoms and these four beasts because the kingdoms of this world represented by those four beasts will become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. And there is the chorus that swells up in the book of Revelation, right? Now we've jumped all the way to the end. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Daniel chapter 8, I titled it, This Too Shall Pass. There's a vision of two beasts. Now, in this vision, the ram and the goat are specifically identified. They're specifically identified as the Medo-Persian Empire and the Greek Empire. Let's let's go to Daniel chapter 8. I'm talking a lot. I'm not reading too much. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, King Belshazzar is the last king of Babylon. The first prophecy I mentioned, chapter 7, occurs in the first year of Belshazzar. First year of Belshazzar, Daniel is given an overview of all of the kingdoms that are going to occur. In the third year of Belshazzar, who's, who's a poor king, he's an immature king, he's a very self-centered king, and he makes very poor decisions that we'll see in Daniel chapter 5. But, but in the midst of his kingdom of Babylon still, Daniel's already shown to look ahead into the future 
at the next two empires that will be coming. He's taken away in this third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, chapter 8, verse 1. A vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, when I saw, was I was in Susa, the capital. Susa would be the capital of the Medo-Persian empire. Daniel's looking ahead. He's been transported into the next empire. And there he sees the ram, which represents the Medo-Persian empire. We're told later on in chapter 8. And that ram, there's a goat comes flying. This goat with one big horn, Alexander the Great, comes charging at the ram and knocks him flat and tramples him and destroys him. But then the horn breaks off and four smaller horns come in its place. Babylon will pass. The Medo-Persian Empire, which follows it, will also pass. In fact, I think it was Genghis Khan that asked his philosophers to come up with a saying that would always be true. Can you come up with a saying, he said, that will always be true? And they thought about it for some time. They stood on it. And, they, and the answer that they gave him was, this too shall pass. That's a good reminder in the midst of trouble. But all of this too shall pass until a kingdom comes that will never pass away, that will never end. And that is the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. And his kingdom will reign forever. So the vision of those two beasts, the ram and the goat, in chapter 8, two more kingdoms that are coming. And there's some specifics mentioned in that that stretch all the way into um, a couple hundred years before Christ comes. And uh, actually, we just celebrated Hanukkah this last week as well. I don't know if you had your menorah out, but Hanukkah was this last week. And Hanukkah, the Feast of Lights, was a cleansing of the temple after it's defiled by one of the horns that arise out of this ram, a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. I mention him in that overview in the back. So you think about Hanukkah a little bit later. Daniel chapter 8. Now, Daniel chapter 9 reminds us to pray in the midst of our waiting. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede. What empire are we in now? We've moved now from Babylon into the Medo-Persian in Daniel chapter 9. So chapter 5 of Daniel has already happened now. And uh, there's the writing on the wall, and the, and, the, and, the, and the Persians come into the city, or the Medes take the city, and Babylon is overthrown. Darius is now ruling. He's made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, and by the first year of his reign, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Jeremiah prophesied that this exile to Babylon because the nation's sin would last for 70 years. What's Daniel doing? Daniel is reading the book. Daniel, in the midst of exile, is reading God's word to find out when they will be delivered and what should he should be doing in the meantime. Daniel is giving, Daniel's just not sitting around waiting for dreams. Daniel is giving himself to the book. He's studying God's word. And as he studies God's word and as he studied Jeremiah's prophecy, he finds out 70 years and he, be, he checks his calendar and he ticks it off and he says, man, we're close. We're, we're, we're nearly on 70 years here. Things are going to be happening. So what, did, what does he do? He, he begins to pray. I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and plea for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He's reciting in his prayer who God is. 
what his God is like. Why does he pray to this God? Our God can be trusted. Our God is faithful. Our God can be leaned on. And Daniel, in this prayer, he identifies himself. Now, Daniel is held up for us as an example of a faithful Israelite, even in the midst of the exile. He and his friends, I mean, his friends are willing to go into the fiery furnace because they trust God. Daniel is willing to be thrown into the lion's den. He's still going to pray three times a day toward Jerusalem because that's what the psalmist told him to do. And now he, he joins in that prayer of Solomon in Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. But he, he joins in that prayer, joining himself with the people. Daniel, probably our best example of a faithful man, a righteous man in an age of infidelity, in an age of godlessness, in an age of abandoning faith, Daniel is held true. And yet Daniel identifies himself with his people sharing in their sin, confessing with them and for them their sin before God, asking then for God to restore them as a people together. Think about it this way. Daniel identifies himself with his sinful people the way that Jesus identified himself with all of humanity at his baptism. John the Baptist says, What? You should be baptizing me. How can I baptize you? And what Jesus was doing in his baptizing was that baptism of repentance, of confession, of guilt, and needing to be cleansed by God. Jesus was doing that, identifying himself with his people who needed to do that. Jesus identified himself with broken, sinful humanity. In fact, he did it to the extent in his death that he who knew no sin was made sin for us so that we could be identified with him, so that we would be made the righteousness of God in him. So you get a, a hint of that in Daniel's identification in his prayer. It's thus a very Christ-centered prayer. He's praying for the Lord's return, and also he's praying in the mind of Christ. Hang on to that thought. We're going to come back to it. This, this is Daniel chapter 9. By way of an overview, Daniel chapter 9 includes the 70 weeks prophecy. I'm not going to go into the details of that. Oh, we could put up charts and we could line up the days. Can I say this? That, that 70 week prophecy includes three. It includes seven weeks of years or 49 years. And then added to that 69 weeks of years. So, no, 62 7 and 62, gives you a total of 69 weeks of years, or sevens of years, which gives you 483 years. Told you all that to tell you this. If you take, if you, if you work the calendar from the day the decree went forth, and that decree is given in the book of Nehemiah chapter 2, when Nehemiah is sent by the king to go and rebuild Jerusalem, before they were told to rebuild the temple, not the city, not the streets, not the walls, not the protective moat and trench, as is told here in Daniel chapter 9. Let me read that in Daniel chapter 9. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't mention that. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, probably the best known section in Daniel as far as prophecy is concerned. Seventy weeks or seventy sevens or seventy sevens of years are decreed about your people and your holy city, Jerusalem. To f and, he and here's the purpose to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Don't you long for that? Don't you long for that? The end of sin? The bringing in of everlasting righteousness? 
All guilt gone. That's the purpose of this prophecy. That's the purpose of this timetable. To seal vision and profit and to anoint the most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. And these weeks are sevens, literally. It's, 70, it's seven and 62 sevens of years. And if you take that 483 years, let me cut to the chase, you go from the date of, 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 uh, of the decree in Nehemiah chapter 2 and you wind up exactly on Palm Sunday when Jesus enters into Jerusalem and the crowds cry out, Hosanna to the Son of David, and he is publicly, overwhelmingly by those crowds recognized as their Christ, as their Messiah. The Prince has entered Jerusalem. But after 69 weeks, it says, after 69 weeks, after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off. The prince will be cut off and shall have nothing. And the, prince of, and, the, and the people of the prince who is to come, a false Christ, the Antichrist, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. So the Messiah is going to be cut off, it says, but not for himself. The prince is going to be cut off after 69 weeks. And what happens? He's presented on Palm Sunday, the recognized as Messiah, and within the week, he is rejected and crucified. They said, we have no king but Caesar. And then later on, Jerusalem, after that period, Jerusalem is destroyed. The people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city, and that's where we get Rome. Because who destroyed Jerusalem? It was the Romans, right? Actually, it was the Syrian legions. It was soldiers or people from Syria led by a few Italians. Okay? I say that just to hold on to my prophetic heresy that that final beast actually will not be a revised Roman Empire. Europe is looking more and more irrelevant by the day. I believe that that final beast is going to be a revived Islamic empire, representing those Arab nations that are detailed in prophecy and that immediately surround Israel and continue to be the greatest ongoing threat to Israel's survival. And that will be the culmination at the end. But I digress. Let's move on to chapter 10. I touched on the 70th weeks, just giving you a hint of, of confidence there that, again, from the decree to Christ. Entering Jerusalem, 69 weeks of years, 483 years to the day. Once you account for every leap year, once you account for Jewish years of 360 days instead of 365 and a quarter, smarter people than me have done that math, and you come out to the day. It's amazing. All right, well, I digress. I said I was going to move on to chapters 10 and 11. Be ready then for the battle. Because the battle that we are in, the battle that Daniel's in the midst of, this is not just clockwork. This is not just um, political events spinning out in the world. But it's about a spiritual battle that's going on. A spiritual battle for the world that is going on. And that's alluded to in chapter 10. You see that spiritual warfare. There's the prince of, of Persia. There's the prince of Greece. And Daniel prays and an angel is sent immediately to respond to his prayer. And that response to his prayer is a very specific detailing of history. 
There are many people that do not believe Daniel was written immediately after the exile. They believe Daniel was written maybe a hundred years before Christ's birth. It couldn't have been written so early, they say, because of what's so described in such detail in Daniel chapter 11. Well, if you don't believe prophecy, if you don't believe that God knows the future, then you have to wind up there. But if you believe that our God knows the beginning from the end, that he's the Alpha and the Omega, he knows the beginning, he knows the end, he started this and he's going to wrap it up. Our God is in charge, and I have no trouble with him giving us some of the details along the way simply to give his people hope in the midst of a dark time that God is in control. That's Daniel chapter 11. And he gives it very specifically. He describes in detail, ahead of time, the intricacies and the tugging back and forth between two of the remnants of Alexander the Great's empire. The Syrians to the north of Israel and the Egyptians to the south. Why does he focus on those two? Because they are going to impact Israel. That's where everything is going to come to a head for Israel because they're going to go back and forth between Israel. And Israel is always going to be caught up in the middle of it. And one of those men is a man named Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV. And Antiochus IV is our best. Uh, he, he is held up biblically as an example of what the Antichrist is going to look like. That's Daniel chapter 11. Now, all of that goes to the point. All of that goes to the point of chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12. We have moved now at the end of Daniel chapter 11 from this Antiochus Epiphanes. He's blended from about verse 36 of chapter 11 into the coming future Antichrist who will, who will arise at the end of the days, in the last days. And chapter 12 and verse 1 picks up on that conversation. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. And there will be a time of trouble, such as has never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people will be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt or condemnation or judgment. So there's an eternal destiny that's described here. Some will arise to glory. Some will arise out of death. Some will be raised up from the dead to condemnation. And verse 3, Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who tune many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Daniel and his friends, through their time in Babylon, have been wise. Some jettisoned their faith. Some decided they were going to get along and go along with the Babylonians as much as they had to as much as was convenient, as much as would advance them. Others determined in the midst of a godless and hostile environment, world, they were going to trust God. They, were going, they resolved that they would not defile themselves. They dissolved that they would remain true to the convictions of their faith which God had given them, told, telling them to walk in this way and to worship in this way, and they held to that. Those who are wise will shine Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, like the stars in the sky, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. What intrigues me about that language is it's used also for us. In the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, similar language dealing with the stars and a heavenly glory versus an earthly glory and the glory that the stars have 
into in, in the future is, is alluded to. But I want you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, because in Philippians chapter 2, we, we see a parallel between us and Daniel. We find that Dan, as Daniel was for Israel, so is perhaps Paul, his imprisonment, like Daniel's exile, his hope, just like Daniel's hope. And the encouragement that he gives for others, like us, is just like the encouragement that Daniel is given for others like him who will be wise, who will see things as they really are, will not be carried along by the changing currents of the times, but will continue to be focused on following the one true God in the midst of it all. And there they will shine as lights in the midst of darkness. They will shine like stars in a dark night sky. And others will see true north because of them. In the book Philippians... Back in, chapter, chapter, uh, back in chapter 1, Paul is in prison. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, he says in verse 12, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul is writing from prison. He hopes that he's going to be delivered soon. He believes that he will be. But in chapter 2, in the meantime, he gives us some of the deepest theology in the New Testament. Chapter 2, in verse 4, he says, Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Have this mind in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to, but he humbled himself. He made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Humility to exaltation. And we're called to the same. We're called to, a, to live out a humility in hope. To live in light of Christ's coming is to live out a humility toward others that is founded on our steadfast hope, confidence, faith, trust in God who holds us, who will keep his promise whose son is returning. And if all of that is true, that changes everything about how I live and what I do in the time that I have between now and then. That's his thrust here in Philippians chapter 2. Look what he says in verse, um, oh, verse 12, just after what I just read about the exaltation of Christ. He holds that out to us as an example. Let that same mind be in you as was in Christ who humbled himself knowing that his Father would exalt him. We can humble ourselves in hope because our Father will exalt us. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling because it is God who works in you, it says, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. God is at work in you and through you. So, what does that look like? Verse 14, do all things. I put this one actually on the screen. I, 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 I even translated a little bit for you. I, I, I tried to fill out these words a little bit. Do all things without grumbling or arguing. 
No, no, really, really. Do all things without grumbling or arguing so that you may be blameless and genuine or pure or sincere or single-minded, genuine followers of God, children of God without blemish, without fault, even as you live in a crooked and perverse society in which you shine. See the language? As stars in the dark world. Even as which you shine, maybe some of your translation reads, as light in the midst of darkness. But the kind of light he's referring to is that heavenly light, that light in the night sky. And I'm not talking about street lights. Among whom you shine like Daniel. Our call is the same as Daniel. Why are we having Christmas jazz? Why are we reaching out to young lives around us? Why are we praying for neighbors and friends? Oh, God, give me an opening. Give me an opportunity. We're not going to be pushy. We're not going to be antagonistic. We're, but in the humility of hope, how will I relate my genuine faith to the people around me? In ways that, that cause them to ask me for an answer in the midst of the troubles of this life and the troubles of this time and the uncertainties that are out there. Am I just joining the angry chorus of complaints about whatever's happening politically or economically? Or do I have a settled confidence in the true and living God in the midst of it all that causes people to say, well, why aren't you more upset about this? Aren't you concerned Well, at one level I'm concerned. At another level I'm not at all concerned because the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. That's where my hope really is. That's where my confidence, that's where my assurance really is and that carries me through all of this other stuff. All that people would ask us to give an answer for the hope that they see within us. Hope in God, not me, leads me to humility, a humility of hope. It's a willing to be abused for Jesus' sake. It's a willingness to put others first. It's a willingness to suffer abuse or others' intolerance or unfairness. I'm not looking out for myself, but instead, like Daniel in chapter 4, I'm looking out for the Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, king, I wish this were true of your enemies instead of you. I'm looking out for their sake, even as Jesus looked out for me. A humility of hope placed in God and not myself. That humility of hope is what causes us to be a light to others in the midst of this present darkness. That's what the book of Daniel is about. The book of Daniel is about a light in the midst of darkness. A light that the darker it gets simply becomes more visible. Oh, that we would burn. Oh, that we would be bright. Oh, that like Daniel says, the wise would shine. The wise are simply those who see things as they really are, who see things from God's perspective. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And those who fear and trust him will shine. Oh, that we would shine for the people around us. At, for Christmas jazz, in accepting an invitation, because they like and trust you. You've been that kind of friend. Maybe something else. I I, I would pray that our schedules would be so open as to be be available. Not with all kinds of church stuff, but our schedules would be open to join people in their celebrations that they might invite us to. 
to have people over in the midst of, the, of, of a busy season just for coffee and dessert and to talk about something about what Christmas really is, that all the hubbub and the shopping and that wouldn't distract us from what matters most. This is our time. This is our season. This is Advent. And now more than ever, let, let's, be, let's fill our hearts with that hope for his glory and for the sake of those around us. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, this we pray. Lord, that you would use us. That you would use us as your lights in the midst of darkness. Father, take us from here this morning. In this afternoon, in tomorrow, the, 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 the people we see, the paths we cross, Lord, would you use us there as light on that path. Father, would you use our lives, would you use out of our lives, Lord, truth that you give us, a word that we would say. Your word was light to, to Daniel from Jeremiah, that message from the angel, that truth of your son's coming that we have. Oh God, would you give us courage, boldness to speak that truth to those around us, to be light to them. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.